Amen. You can turn with me to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. As we've been moving through Peter, inch by inch, over the last few months, we're going to move less than an inch this morning in Peter in chapter 2 in verse 9. Because there's some things that, as I read this, I think that we need to understand a little bit more deeply and a little bit more precisely. And it all stems back to basically the content of this book. The content of this book is about our hope that's found in God's sovereign grace. Our hope in suffering, our hope in joy, our hope at all times is found in the electing work of a great God who chooses out of great mercy to redeem those who do, do not deserve His grace, do not deserve the gifts that He has given to His church, yet He's called us. And you've got to wonder about that though, right? You've got to wonder about your calling sometimes. And If you're ever looking for a reason for God's election, and you're looking from within yourself or in yourself to see a reason why He chose you, you're looking in the wrong place. Because there is nothing inside of you. There is nothing you would do, nothing you could contribute to God's electing you for salvation. You must look to the work of His Son. That is the reason. And that reason goes back to God's great love. But you have to wonder, why did God call you to Himself? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder what you are called to do in His church? You should be wondering that if you're here this morning. Do you ever wonder where you fit in the church? Peter wants us to know all these answers. He wants us to know the answers to these questions. He wants us to know where we fit in God's spiritual house, the church. So if you'd open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 10 to give us the flow of the context. We are going to meditate and ponder and hover over Verse 9, part A. We're not even doing all of 9. We're just doing part A. Because there is so much there about how and why and where we are called and what we are called to do. So listen as I read in chapter 2, verse 1, down to verse 10. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And the stone of stumbling, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. But you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you 
out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I struggle to even try to preach this text because it preaches so well by itself. Just the reading of that text should give you an excitement, an encouragement this morning. It should build you up, edify you to give Him praise. There's, There's amazing things laid out before us in this text. And as we looked in the last few weeks at the first eight verses, we saw that Peter told us that God is building a spiritual foundation with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Remember the previous message, we we talked about how Peter told us that the church is built upon Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone. He is the architect and the builder of the church. Peter also told us that week that we were being built into something. We were being built into a spiritual house, a a living house, though. It's It's a house that lives and breathes and has life in it. And that house is full of a royal priesthood who are set apart as an as a order of priests to serve a, a royal and great king, Jesus. We're being built into his church, is what Peter is telling us. Now, in, in verse 9, what Peter is going to do is he's going to describe our unique position. And listen to these terms, and I struggled with this because I want you to understand it. He's going to describe our unique position as a as as living stones placed one on top of another in this spiritual house. You're intertwined. You're the people of God. You're one in Christ. Living stones placed by the sovereign hand of God in Christ's church. One on top of another, built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles, the teaching of Scripture. Peter wants us to understand that this morning. He wants us to understand that the church, the church is a living body, not a bunch of living bodies. You are the body of Christ incarnate on the earth. You are the reflection of God's glory here, now, until He comes. The church is a living body, and yes, we're made up of living stones. But those stones are all united in Christ. Stones are placed here to do something, though. You are placed in the church. You fit into this church as a stone that was made to reflect the glory of our God who saved you, who sought you, who bought you, who purchased you, who bled and died for you on the cross. You're to be a mirror of His greatness. It's a high calling God has given to us. Peter, Peter wants us to feel the weight of this. Peter's telling us that we are, number one, chosen stones. Number one, we're chosen stones. We'll look at that in verse 9 in a moment. We're also, number two, commissioned stones. Not only chosen, but we're commissioned. We have a mission. These stones have a purpose. Peter also tells us, number three, that we are consecrated, sacred stones, set-apart stones set apart for the glory of God. We belong to Him. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. You have been chosen, commissioned, and consecrated by God, the sovereign God of the universe. Chose you. Commissioned you. 
consecrated you to reflect him. Peter's describing our unique position as living stones in God's house, God's church, his ecclesia, his called out people. Look at verse 9, part A. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. There is my outline this morning. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people. We're going to begin, though, by just looking at the first few words in verse 9, which I find absolutely astounding. The first three words, to be precise. But you are. It could be an exclamation point after you. These words are flowing out of the context of verses 7 and 8. Peter's going to contrast the church with those who deny the truth. He's going to contrast those who are stumbling over Christ with those who have placed their faith in Christ. He's making a contrasting statement about those who deny the Word and reject the Savior with those who believe by God's grace in the work of Christ. That's what he says in verse 7. This precious value, this precious knowledge, this precious gift is for you. You who believe, you who have trust, you have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he previously spoke about. But for those who disbelieve, this stone, which is a stone which the builders rejected, it became the very chief cornerstone to you. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is what now becomes our foundation. But to them, it was a rock of offense that would one day crush them under God's judgment because they rejected His only means of salvation. And verse 8 goes on to say that these stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. If you have believed in God's Word, if you have believed the Scriptures about Jesus, you weren't appointed to doom. You were appointed to eternal life. But those who have rejected the Word were appointed, set apart to destruction. But you, he says in verse 9, you are not like the unbelievers. Peter is edifying you this morning. Peter is building up this spiritual house, you living stones. He is trying to put you in line and place you in a place where you're strong and you're encouraged and you're standing firm with one mind and one heart to declare the glory of our God together with one voice. That's what Peter's telling these Christians at this time. You understand, these Christians in this context were suffering under persecution, under being exiled, away from families, away from other churches, away from other believers. They were sad, they were depressed, they were scared. They thought they were alone. And Peter is saying to them, look, You, you are a chosen people. Notice this in in verse 9. Three times in verse 9, he says, you, you, you. And in verse 10, he says it four more times. You, you who were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is edifying you this morning. He wants you to remember that if you are in this church, if you are in Christ, it's not because of what you have done, but because of what God has done for you. And you need to realize the difference between you and the unbeliever is grace. Unmerited favor. 
And there is a difference because now you believe. Peter encourages those living stones that they have been brought together by the divine architect and the builder of the church, Jesus Christ. They have been born again. That's what he says. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. You've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. And that's speaking of the gospel. You've been born again. You've been regenerated through faith in Jesus Christ's work. That is your hope. If you believe that this morning, you are in the category of verse 9. You are one of the chosen race of God. Understand, he's, he's speaking in an interesting way here to a group of mixed people. He's speaking to a, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Some Jews who were disobedient, who were, had left Israel, had left the place of comfort, and they found themselves in a foreign land doing foreign things, and someone preached the word of grace to them, and they were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And then Gentiles who were pagans, worshiping all the panoply of gods of Rome and everything else that was out there in the world, including themselves, they, they are being brought to faith again through the preaching of the gospel. And now they're being brought together in a very strange way, Jews and Gentiles in a church, in a setting where they're speaking about God and His grace. And the Jews are hearing certain things and the Gentiles are hearing certain things. And Peter uses certain terms to say, I want to show you how united you truly are in Christ. So Peter starts to pull phraseologies that comes from the Old Testament and applying it to the church. And he tells them that they're a new race of people. You are Christian race. You're no longer Jew nor Gentile. You are Christian you're, you're not in this new race through a physical descent from Abraham, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using these Old Testament terms that, that would really describe the people of God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And he's going to apply these to the church. And what Peter's doing is he's, he's speaking in terms of unity of the people of God, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. We need to understand something. All believers are made one in Christ. Old Covenant saints were saved by faith, by grace through faith in God's future provision. They looked to the types and the shadows that pointed to the cross. We look backward in time as New Testament, New Covenant saints at the cross where it was accomplished. But we all come in by grace through faith the same way. The people of God are saved the same way is what Peter is telling us. Peter is going to apply some Old Testament terminology to us so that we can understand this more fully. Now, when I say this, I want, you to, I want to be careful here what I'm saying. Peter's not meaning that the church replaces Israel. That is not what he means. He's not saying that there is no future hope for the nation of Israel, the elect of Israel. There's going to be a future conversion of Israel in the last days. We're going to see that. It's going to happen. He's not saying we've taken their place. He's simply saying you have been brought in by the same faith, by the same work. Look at Romans 11 to see that he's not replacing Israel here. Romans 11. So you understand what I'm saying. Romans 11:22. Behold, when the kindness then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity speaking of Israel, but to you Gentiles, God's kindness. But if 
you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That's Israel. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That is, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, until, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel would be saved. So you understand this. God's not replacing one for the other. He has a people that He has set apart unto Himself. And He worked through the nation Israel to draw the elect out of that nation. And He now works through the church. And there are wheat and tares in the church. Yet we know that there is an elect church. Listen to what John Calvin said regarding this, this, these passages here in Romans 11. John Calvin put it this way. I extend the word Israel to all the people of God according to this meaning. When the Gentiles shall come in, the Jews also shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith. And thus shall all be completed the salvation of the whole Israel of God, which must be gathered from both. Yet in such a way that the Jews shall obtain the first place, being as it were the firstborn in God's family. There's a special place in God's covenant love for Israel, for his people. There is a special place for you. God did not have a plan B when he created the church. God had a people that he had ordained from the foundation of the world, from the elect of Israel and from the elect in the new covenant. So Peter is using four Old Testament terms to describe this and define our relationship and our position this morning. And he's, he's doing this to encourage us. He's doing it to encourage the exiled Jews and the Gentiles who had been in paganism. Now, go back with me in 1 Peter 1.9. Peter's going to define our unique position. And, he, and number one, he, he, calls it, he calls us a chosen stones. Now, if you'll notice, when I, when I gave you the outline, every word that I used ended plural. Chosen stones, commissioned stones, consecrated stones. There's a plurality in those terms, and there's a reason for that. Because God doesn't just say, I want a person. Or a certain race. He didn't just choose Israel. He chose a people for his own possession. Peter says in verse 9 that we are a chosen race. And that word there, race, is genos. Genos. It means a family. Adopted. Adopted family. Adopted by God's choice. Peter's going to quote Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah with me. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 15. Isaiah 43, 15. God in Isaiah 43 is, is being depicted as the one who formed His people. God chose this nation. God formed and adopted a family by His own sovereign choice. He formed it all by Himself. Look what it says in verse 15. I am the Lord your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They will 
they have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will will you not be you will I'm sorry, will you not be aware of it? I even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters to the wilderness in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. God formed a people. Peter wants us to understand this. Peter wants us to understand that God's people didn't evolve. They didn't come into existence on their own. They didn't spontaneously become the children of God. God formed them. He formed them by a sovereign hand. He reached into this corrupt world and He picked out a people. And understand this, if you're a believer this morning and not a stumbler like in verses 7 and 8, if you're not one who stumbles over the truth of the gospel, it's because God has sovereignly formed you. God has sovereignly elected you. God has picked you out from this world. And He spoke life into you. Just like Jesus spoke life into Lazarus in the grave. Come forth, He said to you. He formed a new heart in you. He opened blinded eyes. And He gave you life, just like He did Abram and Israel. Look at Genesis 11. Look at Genesis 11. God is the one who orchestrated Israel. God is the one who created a people. Genesis 11, verse 26. I don't know that you're all familiar with this, but maybe you need to know this. Abram, the father of Israel. Abram, the father of faith. Abram was a pagan. He was a heathen. He was an idol worshiper. According to Joshua 24.2, that's what his dad did for a living. He was a pagan. God didn't look at Abram and go, he's going to be my choice guy. I have foreseen knowledge. He's going to always be obedient and never lie about his wife. He didn't do that. He chose him in spite of those things, but he chose him to reflect His work of grace in Abram, in Israel, and to bring forth the Messiah so that we would, by faith, believe. Look what it says in Genesis 11, 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Terah is his dad. Nahor and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's a pagan land. It's not a a choice land. They were pagans there. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcai, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. 
The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. God tells this pagan, Abram, that I am going to give birth to a nation through you. I am going to give you life. I am going to bring forth the Messiah from you, the Savior of the world, through Him. God called this nation into being, and He called His people into being where there was no people. That's what a sovereign God can do. When there is no life, He can give life. That's why He's God and we're not. God can do what we desire to do oftentimes. We desire to see our friends and loved ones saved, rescued from the wrath to come. And we are called to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel that they would receive and be saved from the wrath to come. But it is ultimately up to God to give life in the dead sinner's heart. And we rest in that. We are faithful with the message and we rest in God's sovereignty. He will save His elect. But His elect weren't saved, and you're not saved, and Israel wasn't saved, and Abram wasn't saved because of anything that was within them. Everyone who is born again are brought to faith in Christ because of God's electing love. In love, He predestines. Don't ever forget that in Ephesians 3. 1-3. Don't ever forget. It's in love you have been predestined. The holy God who created all things set His love upon you to have an intimate relationship with you. Israel wasn't chosen because of what he saw they would do in the future. He wasn't foreseen faith or good works. Look at Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Maybe to the right of Genesis there. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God didn't choose... Abram didn't choose Israel because of what he saw that they would bring him, what he saw that they would do for him. He didn't choose them for that reason. He chose them to show what he would do through them. In love, he would pick out what the world would cast off. And in love, he would pick them out, set them apart, call them to be his people, set a covenant of love on them, and accomplish what nothing and no one could ever do on their own. He would bring forth the Holy One from Abram, the pagan. Look what it says. Here's why, here's why God chose them. Here's why God elected Israel. This should really make you wonder about your own election. Is there something in you that God looked at you and said, Oh, you are precious to me. I see that you're going to do great things for me, so therefore I will pick you. Because if that's the case, you're saved by your works and not by grace. And that's not the case at all. God didn't see anything in you but your sin. And that's what he saw in Israel. 7 verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, or choose you because you were more in number. He didn't choose you because you're going to be a prolific people. He didn't choose you because there was going to be a lot of you. You're more in number than all the peoples. But you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see that? You were chosen 
Israel was chosen because God loved them and he kept his oath with them and he redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery to sin and brought them out into freedom. That's exactly what God does for us as believers in Christ. He seeks us. He sets his love on us. He calls us out. He redeems us. He sets us apart to do his work so that we could be reflectors of his glory. God's elect are chosen just like Israel, the nation. We're chosen by God's free and loving grace. God alone is to be praised for our salvation. I've heard John Piper say something like this. God makes much of you so that you can make much of him. That's why you're saved. That's why you're called out. Israel was called out to make much of God. It's exactly what Peter is talking about. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what Peter is talking about when he, he opens this letter to these suffering and scattered Christians. He starts the letter with the deepest doctrine in the Bible. So that they would have a deep and abiding peace as they go through suffering. And if you want to go through suffering with peace, if you want to go through suffering with joy, ponder God's love for you. Think about what God has done for you in Christ. Think about what He has expressed to you out of free grace in choosing you out from the world. That's what Peter begins his address with. To those who, are, who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And then he ends with, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace and peace will be yours in the fullest measure if you ponder this correctly. God set His love on you. His sovereign love. His mercy on you. And He did that in such a magnificent way, it's hard for us to fathom it. Before this world was created, God picked out a people to be His own. And He picked out a Redeemer to die for their sins. God crushed His own Son to redeem His own people to bring glory to His own name. That's why you're saved. And that would be a comfort to you as you're going through suffering. It would be a comfort to you as you go through trials in this life. Isn't it a comfort to you to know that when the world is against you, when everything's coming against you, the whole world is opposed to you, that God, before the world was created, chose you? He chose you. Let the world come. It's me against the world. I win in Christ. He has overcome the world for me. And he has set his love on me. Look back in chapter 2, verse 9 again. Peter tells us that the church is a called out, a chosen people. A chosen race, marked out in eternity past to bring God praises in the present. You understand that? You, you, you aren't just, just to revel in what he did in the past. Revel in it, okay? I mean, praise God for it. Ponder it, wonder at it, be amazed by it. But if you're, if you're able to ponder at it and, and be amazed by it, it's going to affect you presently through your obedience in the faith. Sprinkled by the blood of Christ, set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to bring God glory in this world. You've been chosen out to be a race of people to give God glory. You're a race. It means you're a family. You're a genos. 
You're a family that's been adopted by God. Now, what I want you to do is, as you think about that, just here in this gathering here, I want you to, to think about, look at those people around you right now. Seriously, look at those people around you right now. These are God's chosen, blood-bought, precious people that He adopted. You will spend an eternity with the people you see this morning that are Christians. This, this should go a long ways toward our seeking to fervently love one another in the present. To caring for one another in the present. For correcting one another in the present. You will spend eternity singing God's praises with these people. They're eternal beings. Chosen by God. It's amazing. God intentionally picked out, hand-picked those people before you this morning, before the world was created. That is an amazing truth that should, should affect the way you effectually love one another. Serve one another. Because in doing that, you're serving the Savior. It's His body. Your gifts aren't yours. They're His gifts for others. You were chosen and set apart as a race of people to bring our Father glory. We're adopted into a body. You are a family united in Christ. Peter says the church is a chosen race adopted by God's electing grace. If you're a Christian, you have been handpicked by God the Father, placed into this family. Each and every one of you as Christians have a special place in this church, this local church. You are all living stones placed sovereignly in this local church. You're not here by accident. You might have thought when you got up this morning, I'm going to church. No, you are the church, and you're a part of a church. And God put you in a church, put a desire in you to be in this church. Therefore, you're a living stone created to be put in sovereign grace. To be here by God's divine choice so that you would display His grace in the church. That's why you're a chosen race. You're a hand-picked people chosen to reflect God's glory in the church. Now listen, if we reflect God's glory rightly in the church and we love one another fervently in the church, it's going to affect us evangelistically in the world. We're going to go out into the world and the world will see a difference in us. They'll see that we are committed to the greatest institution that was ever created before the world was made, the church which reflects God's glory. Now, look further in verse 9. Peter, Peter defines further our unique position as living stones. He, he calls us commissioned stones. He says that we're, number two, a, a royal priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. We are given new privileges, is what he's getting at. We're giving new privileges, the, the privileges of a person in a king's court, a royal priest. We're giving new privileges and we're given a new mission as God's children. God's chosen race is given a new mission and a place. His elect children now have privileges that no one had previous to the incarnation of Christ. We have direct access to God the Father's ear, His presence, because we have a great high priest who has entered in within the veil for us and offered His life as our sacrifice. And He is interceding for us. So understand this. This is what you need to be amazed by this morning. Every single one of you as Chosen people, chosen living stones in Christ's body have been given this great privilege to have access into the holiest of holies through Christ's sacrifice. That's what priests did. That's what priests are called to do. 
Priests were called to enter into the holy place. Priests were called to set their lives apart to priestly service. Priests in the Old Testament were chosen to serve in God's temple their entire life. And that is exactly what you're called to do as Christians. Your body is the temple of God. You are called to give your body as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing unto God 24-7. And do you realize that you're able to do something that the Old Testament priests could never do now through Christ? You're able to have access 24-7 to the presence of a sovereign and holy God through His sacrifice. You should be amazed by that. You, right now, if you're praying in your heart, in your mind, or thinking through these words in your heart, giving praise to God, you are in the throne room of God. He hears you. He sees your heart. This should humble you. This should thrill you to know that I have an audience with the King through Christ's work. This should rejuvenate your prayer life. This should help you rethink your corporate worship. Listen, we sang songs this morning, and I think Brett did a fantastic job of leading us to Jesus this morning in those songs. And what I, what I want us to understand, though, when we gather here on a Sunday morning to sing, you're not singing for anyone else but the King. You realize you, when you gather with the church and begin to sing corporately, there's a chorus of priests entering into God's presence with a sacrifice of praise, the offering of our lips, thanksgiving. You have God's attention when you're in worship with the church. It's a precious time to be gathered. It's an amazing place to be when you meet on Sundays with other choice stones. Gathered for God's glory. To serve in God's kingdom. To serve one another and glorify our God. That's what we're called to do. Priests gave their life for service. You're called to be a royal priest, the king's priest. And it's not just an individual priest. You're an order of priests. It's not singular, it's plural. Every Christian has this great privilege and great responsibility. You're called to serve in the church as Christians. There, there is no role in the church for sitting and soaking. There is a role for sitting and absorbing and in living out what you learn. If we just fill our minds with knowledge, we become puffed up and proud. If we fill our minds with all the knowledge, but we don't act on that knowledge, we become not a standing stone, a memorial to God. We stand in the way. We need to be serving through the knowledge of Christ, others in the church, for the glory of our King. Our King loved them and gave His life for them. Therefore, we should serve them. There are co-heirs in Christ. Husbands, serve your wives. Pray for them. Listen to them. Deal carefully with them. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands in honor of the head who put them over you. Serve the King who commands you. Serve Jesus in the church. Verse 9, Peter talks about the church as a royal priesthood. We are selected to serve Christ continually and corporately when we gather. That's why if you turn, turn to Romans 15 quickly. Romans 15. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is emphatic about our fellowship. He's emphatic about having right relationships 
when the church gathers corporately, do you realize that? When we gather with one another corporately and when we gather with one another privately even. But corporately, He wants us to have unity of mind, unity of doctrine, unity of love. Because we are to come together on this precious day, this day of convocation, holy convocation, on a Sunday morning, to gather with the saints. And if our hearts are not set upon our Savior and loving our brothers and sisters, we fall short of our service to our King. So Paul's so emphatic here about our relationships being right in the church. Look what he says in verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. That means when you come into the church, a church is never any stronger than the weakest person in the church, by the way. You understand that? If you see weakness in your brother or sister in Christ, and your, your job is to bear their burdens, is to come alongside them, serve them, love them, care for them, then the whole church grows together as one body, together in unity. But the church will never be any stronger than the weakest Christian in the church. You don't come just to please yourselves. When we talk about worship and corporate worship, what I really hate is the phrase, I'm coming to have an experience with God. It's like saying, I'm coming to get high on God. Listen, you're coming to give praises to God on high. That is your calling. If you're coming just to get, you're coming for the wrong reason. You're coming to give. And you give praises to Him when you love others in the church. that He's saved. You consider others as more important than yourself, as Christ did, who left heaven's glory to become our Savior and sacrifice. Yes, we do experience God. I'm not saying we don't in the corporate worship. But what I'm saying is, what's your motive for being here? Are you coming to get or to give? Give praise. Give edification. That's what you're called to do as a church. For even Christ, he says, or verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Jesus Christ, even Christ, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And whatever was written in the earlier times, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind and with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that, here's the purpose, you need to have one mind. You need to be considering others. You need to be edifying others. So that with one Accord, you may with one voice glorify, magnify, reflect the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. It's what we're called to do when we continually and corporately gather as God's royal priests. You in this church, you, sovereign grace, you are priest ordained by God to serve the King of Kings now and forever. That is your calling. Every single one of you as believers in the Lord Jesus, you're living stones and you're placed in this church to serve. You're placed here to serve Christ and those who Christ loves. Now go back with me to 1 Peter 2.9. He not only calls us a chosen race or a royal priesthood, He also calls us a holy nation. Peter further defines the church there in verse 9a as a consecrated stone. Consecrated stones, plural. We are stones that are set apart unto God, a holy nation. 
That was, that was the word, I believe, ethos. Or ethos. It's, it's talking about ethnicity. We are a sacred, a holy ethnicity now in Christ. It, that, word, that word nation actually means we're a, a multitude. Okay, we're not, we're not an individual. We are a nation. We're a multitude of individuals. A multitude of individuals who are to reflect something about our Father. Because we're also a race, so it means we're a people, and we're a priesthood. But we're a nation, so ultimately this multitude has one Father, and our Father is holy. So this, this multitude, this ethos, this nation, has been given life to reflect the nature of our Father. Israel had that calling upon them. The nation Israel had the calling to, to be a holy nation and to be different from other nations around them. They were to be a stone that reflected, that was consecrated, set apart, reflected God's glory in this world around them. Understand this. Israel was called to be different than the world. And if you're a Christian, you're called to be different than the world. Israel was given a new morality. They were given a, given a new lifestyle. They were even given a new language, Hebrew. They were so set apart that it affected every part of their life. They were to be sanctified and set apart because they weren't their own. Remember, they were formed by God to reflect His name and His glory. They were to reflect Him in the pagan world around them. That is your mission as a holy nation. You are a set-apart multitude of priests serving a holy God, chosen to be a people, a family that gives God praise when we go into this world of darkness. They'll never ask you about the hope you have unless you stand out from the world that is hopeless. And if, if, you, if, if you're coming to the church, or you're coming to Jesus, rather, if you're coming to Jesus just to get what the world wants, they don't, need, they don't need to see that kind of witness. They need to see you coming here to worship a great and transcendent God, not just to come here to be comforted or to be eased. You need to come here to, to be challenged, to go out and be different from the world, set apart, because God has set you apart as His own. Israel was called a holy nation. Look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19. And I'm going somewhere with this, so just hang with me, okay? One more page of notes, and we're done. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, these are the words that Peter's robbing from the Old Testament to apply to the church. Okay? These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, Moses was told. Look at Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11. In Exodus, he called them a holy, sacred, set-apart nation. Now, Leviticus eleven forty four. he says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate means to set apart, be holy, 
Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves, make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does that not resonate with Peter? Peter said that previously. Peter gave us that very same command in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, be holy. For I am holy is what God has commanded us. Now, we have a tendency to think because we're saved by grace. We have freedom. And people interpret that word freedom as, now I'm free, I can sin or I can serve. You know, if you're free to sin, that kind of defeats the purpose of being set free from sin. When this train goes by every day, that train is most free when it's within the confines of the track was designed to carry it. God's people are most free when they're in the confines of His grace and His word and His instruction. And I want you to understand something. Though we are in grace, we do not want sin to abound. Though when sin does abound, grace abounds even more. We know that we are forgiven through Christ, but we, we, we haven't had God's standard changed. God's still holy. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He never changes. God's standard hasn't changed under grace. His standard is still holiness. But because we fail to be holy, He had to send a Savior in our place who was holy. Jesus is the Israel of God. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the commands in our place. He is our substitute. He fulfilled it all for us. He didn't lighten the load of holiness. He magnified it. Ah, God is so holy. One sin demands my death on the cross. And He hangs and He bleeds and He dies under the wrath of God for one sin committed by me. And multitudes committed by me. In grace, holiness is magnified because now we have Redemption through Christ, who took our place, who became our righteousness. He was our holy substitute. And not only that, not only does does grace magnify the demand of holiness, we have someone living in us that is holy and equips us and convicts us and motivates us to move out in holiness. The Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one in you that says, when you have a lustful thought or an angry thought or angry action, He says, sin, repent. And then you're driven back to praise God for the gift of Christ and you glory in the cross. That is what is the continual pattern of the Christian's life. The Spirit convicts the heart of sin and we return to holiness. To be a worldly Christian is an oxymoron. And if you think you can live in that and have, say, uh, say, have, have um, assurance of your salvation, you need to go back and examine yourself to see if you've been tapped into the root of Christ Jesus. Because the root of Christ is going to produce the fruit of righteousness and holiness. And if it's not the perfection of your life, it is going to be the direction of your heart. Because it's not going to be the perfection in this life. Jesus was the perfection of holiness for us. Jesus has entered in within the veil because He was holy. And intercedes now for us. The holiness standard hasn't changed. It's been magnified in Christ. 
We're called now to reflect his glory in the church. We're called a holy nation. You are set apart to reflect your Savior's work. If Jesus' work of redemption means anything to you, you will love holiness and you will hate sin. You are called to be set apart to reflect the power of the cross that broke the chains of sin forever. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am bought. I am purchased by God. I am set free to walk in obedience because Christ died. Because Christ died, I want to run from my sin. I hate my sin that cost my Savior His life. If you're a Christian in this church, you are set apart by God, holy, like a nation of people, a multitude of people to reflect Jesus' work through your actions. Holiness is not a theory for Christians. It is the effectual work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. You will be sanctified progressively, but there will be growth in sanctification. As you ponder the cross of Christ, you will hate more and more what you do that dishonors Christ. You're all living stones placed in a church to reflect the holiness of God to the world. It's what Israel failed to do. It's what Christ never failed to do. What Israel couldn't do, what you and I can't do, Israel and I have failed, but Christ has conquered. He conquered sin. And He reigns forevermore in holiness in heaven, interceding for His children. Now finally, go back to 1 Peter 2.9. Peter ends by telling us that we are not just chosen stones, not just commissioned stones, not just consecrated stones. We are stones that belong to a sovereign king. We are a people. He gets a little bit away from the metaphor of building now, and he's talking about who we are as a people. We are a people owned by God. A people, it says there in verse 9, people for God's own possession. And that word there is a laos, not laos, but a laos, L-A-O-S. We are a people group. We are a, it's the word, tribe. And, and I think the King James may say we are, we are a peculiar people. That doesn't mean you're strange. You might be strange, but it's not because of that. He says we're a people that are encircled. That word peculiar means you're owned. God has drawn a circle around you to say that's my peculiar possession. You're owned by God. This was another description of Israel in the Old Testament. It meant that they, when he called them his own possession, his people for his own possession, they were means they were owned by God. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4.20. Deuteronomy 4.20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession as today. You were taken out of the iron furnace, taken out of slavery to sin, removed from Egypt. Because they were in Egypt because of their sin and they're disobedient to God's covenant. God disciplined His people. He says, you're, you're brought out though for a purpose. You're brought out to be a people for my own possession, He says. 
Moses tells us in this, in this text how that God brought Israel out to be his, to be a reflection of his work. He, he didn't bring them out of, to be free to do whatever they wanted. They were brought out of slavery to sin so they could follow God wherever he commanded them. They weren't free to go where they wanted. God told them where to go. He told them the land they were going to enter into. They weren't free to eat what they wanted, so he gave them the law. And he said, this is what you can have, this is what you can't have. They weren't free to worship however they wanted. He said, you worship me and me alone, and you do it this way. So he gave them the tabernacle, and he instituted the ordinances there. God had to give them those commands. He had to encircle them and give them a guide and a direction because he knew they couldn't obey his commands. He knew that their hearts were slaves to sin, that they were evil. So God, in his mystery of mysteries, set his covenant love on Israel. He encircled them. He drew his hand around them and said, they're mine. Though they sin, though they fall short, though they neglect my word at times, I will keep them with an everlasting love. And this is what Peter's telling you today. Though you fall short of being a royal priest, though you fall short of being one who is chosen by God and reflecting Him perfectly as a chosen race, though you fall short of being holy in your actions, know this, Jesus never fell short. And He is your substitute. He took your place and God wrote your name on His hand and said, Mine. These are mine. I have encircled them. They belong to me. Jesus paid the price. We are chosen and possessed by God. Marked out as his own possession. And not only did God give Israel those rules to mark them out because they would fall short. He he gave them those rules to protect them. And to to love them. And I think sometimes we, we misunderstand that love that God had for them. God didn't love them because they were lovely. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you because he set his covenant love on you and he wants to glorify his name. Look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36:22. God encircled his people and he gave them a covenant of love, but he did it so that his name would be praised. That's the purpose of God's electing you for salvation as well. If if people don't obey God's commands, we rightly deserve God's wrath. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God has intervened in grace and sending his son to take our place so that we would be encircled, that we would be loved, we would be set apart, we would be vessels chosen by God not just because of who we are, but because of what His Son has done so that God's name is praised. That is the purpose of your regeneration. That was the purpose of election in Israel. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Understand this, the loving grace of God and the loving discipline of God, you know that God, if He has chosen you, He is going to rebuke you, sanctify you, and one day glorify you because He says, those are mine. 
They're made to reflect my nature. And just know this, he's not going to let anything be wasted on you, even your own sin. He's going to turn that in a way that will bring him praise and glory through his son. Because when you sin, who do you call upon? Christ. You remember the work of Jesus. Just know this, God will set you apart. You will be holy. You may not be perfectly holy now in your own life, but one day in Christ, you will be made complete in heaven. And he does that. This is the guarantee of this. This is the guarantee of salvation. If God chose you, he has also chose to redeem you and make you holy. And you will get through this life because he said, I picked you out to be my reflection. I picked you out to show my power. I picked you out to show my glory through my son's work. You will make it. I've set my covenant on you. You will make it to the end. You will persevere. You will be transformed along the way. But you will persevere because I have chosen you for my namesake. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. One day when the king of king comes and we are all transformed in the blink of an eye, a twinkling of an eye. The nations, the world will know that we belong to a holy and righteous king who loves his children, never forsakes us, never will he leave us. He will come again to show his glory in us. That's what you're called to do. This is guaranteed. Sovereign grace guarantees eternal peace with God and the honor of his name. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into my own land, into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you I, 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 verse 24, 23, all the way down. I, 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 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Listen, for the blood-bought Christian, that's your desire now. You don't perfect this now, but this is your desire, is it not? Don't you want obedience? Aren't you longing for it when you sin against God? Aren't you broken? You have a new heart because you've been chosen. You have a new heart. You are a new people. You're placed into a new relationship with God through the work of His Son. His redeeming act is what brought you salvation. You're living stones through the work of Christ. You're called, you're commissioned, you're consecrated to serve God. Peter tells us the church, you individually, are God's own possession. I just want you to understand that this morning. And I want it to comfort you and I want it to encourage you and move you. I want us to move us as a church toward one another too. Because if you think through this a little bit, it's saying that we are a called together people. We are a commissioned together people. We are a consecrated together people. Understand this, your place in the local church is essential. It's necessary and it's sovereignly given to you to serve here in the local church in whatever capacity and gifts that you've been given. 
You're living stones. And understand this, you're living stones placed in the body by Jesus himself. Jesus says, I will build my church. And if you're a part of the church, you're the handiwork of God. He's working in your life. He is building a body to reflect his work and his glory now and throughout eternity. But he does want his glory reflected now through the church. Church is made up of individuals, but we're all called into one body. Called to reflect the work of Christ. Now, what I want want to do is end on Revelation 5. Revelation 5, I think, is the summary of even Peter's thinking. If you understand that you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, and that you have been called to be a holy nation and a people for God's own possession, just know that this is what it's all about. This is why he did it. Because you, as individuals, will stand with multitude on multitude on multitude in the presence of God's glorious throne in heaven, singing about the redeeming act of Christ that he accomplished here on earth for you. So that God will be praised. And what I love about this passage is they sing about the redeeming act of Jesus in heaven. We don't get past it. We're practicing for it now. When you sing Sunday after Sunday, prepare for this. This is what you're going to do. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, and, and the, the beauty of this is everyone knows the words. doesn't matter what tribe, what nation, what people, because you're the people of God, one in Christ. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you, this is the lion and the lamb, this is Jesus himself, you were slain. Do you see the redemptive nature of the song? The bloody sacrifice of Jesus? You were slain and purchased. You you purchased us with your blood. Purchased for God with your blood. Men. Notice what it says. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. You inherit the world. You know that? That's what this song's about. We will inherit all that belongs to Christ. We're joint heirs with Him. It won't be this world of sin. It'll be a new world, a new heaven. And then He said, I looked and I heard. I mean, the songs of the saints inspire the angels here. Do you see this? I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And a number of them were myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing that was in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to Jesus who sits on the throne to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures were amazed. They kept saying, so be it, so be it, amen. And the elders themselves fell down and worshipped. That's what we're called to do. You are called 
to be a people unto God's own possession and reflect it now. That's what Peter's telling us. Now, what I love about this is Peter's preparing us for next week because he's telling us if you get your spiritual identity right, if you understand your calling, you're going to understand your mission. And next week we will look at the mission because he's setting us up in verse 9a to excite our souls so that we would go do something in part B that would bring honor to our king. Let's give him honor now as we pray and give him thanks for the time we've spent today in his word. Father, we thank you today for you have shown us many and wondrous things in your word about our new position as living stones in your body. And Lord, we know that we are placed here because of the chief cornerstone. So we give thanks to Jesus this morning for placing us in the body here at Sovereign Grace and calling us into a spiritual service. And God, I just want our church to bring forth before you this day a chorus of praise, a sweet aroma of thanksgiving this day that's worthy of our King who saved us, worthy of your glorious grace that chose us, and worthy of the future we have in eternity with you singing your praises. Thank you for this time, and I ask that you bless each and every soul here so that they would give you more glory and more praise in their life and their ministry. Thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.